Things change from one generation to the next. Attitudes, politics, technology, even lifestyles. But when it comes to business, there's one thing every generation has in common. The pursuit of excellence. Welcome to Generation Excellence. A conversation with next-gen leaders of family businesses who are working to preserve the past and innovate the future. And now, here's the host of Generation Excellence and a third-generation business owner himself, Jamie Michelson. Jamie? I was fortunate to meet my guest, Jim Gatward, by being seated next to him at a recent wedding. We got to talking, shouting over loud music, actually, and discovering we each had spent a key portion of our careers in family-owned businesses. The podcast came up, and Jim said, I'm in. And you, the listener, are in for quite a journey, mostly by air, which you'll come to understand, on the epic story of LaSalle Electric, from humble Michigan roots to U.S. expansion and ultimately sale to a global partner. Literally, buckle your seatbelt, bring your seat back and tray table to the upright position, and welcome Jim Gatward to tell his and his family's business story on this episode of Generation Excellence. Welcome, Jim Gatward, to the Generation Excellence podcast. We finally get this done. You've been traveling and busy and so excited. And as I said, I, I know uh, bits of your business history and story, but I'm going to let you tell it and ask. But the t- take me back to this a business that you were involved with that your father was that's founded, correct correct yep so 1950s era founding no or much 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 earlier earlier than that yeah, yeah so what, what's the origin story of and was it LaSalle Electric from day one no okay so well, even in before a, that in a form it was um, my dad was uh, born and raised in Winnipeg Manitoba okay and he was one of seven kids and my grandfather, who I never met, um, worked on the Canadian Railroad. And when my dad was 17, um, his dad, my grandfather, said, you got to go. There's too many kids in the house. <laughs> so my dad and my uncle Bill ended up packing up, and they had heard that the uh, National Hockey League was going to expand, and they were going to start to play hockey in the United States. So... Hmm. That was quasi-open border, so he moved down to Windsor and tried out for the Red Wings and got cut probably the first or second day. Hmm. But they both came down and they both stayed. And uh, Dad ended up getting a job uh, in the electrical industry uh, in Detroit as a salesman. And he was going across the border and eventually became naturalized American Uh, citizen. And uh, he worked for a distributor that sold to the steel plants and the automotive. And it was it was a very fragile, delicate, rapidly changing business at the time. And the electrical business, because he you were fuses were still a thing, circuit breakers were new. Got Everything it. was was transitioning. So he became a salesman and and kind of swept the floors and did selling and then um, that was with a company down in Detroit down in the in the Cass Corridor and he did very well and ended up becoming over several years into the 30s and the 40s he became a salesman became a sales manager okay. and he saved up enough money and uh, ended up marrying my mom who was born and raised in Scotland okay. and so. 
our family were all, we were first generation Americans. And he ended up um, having the ability to, he thought he saved enough money to buy his own company. Okay. Looked around, looked around, and there was really nothing in the electrical industry until he came across a little mom and pop distributor right next to the state fairgrounds called LaSalle Electric. Ah. There's the name. And so there's no French in our family. There is, but the name was recognized, but it was small. And it was a husband and wife electrical distributor. My dad bought them. So he always had this idea of having his own business, but not starting it from dead scratch, like finding something to sort of be the base. You couldn't get, and this is still true today, if you didn't have the product lines to sell, you probably were not going to get them. Got it. So inherently, the only way to get a business was to buy an existing business. Okay. So he buys LaSalle, and I, I think they had five or six employees, and he did he did well. Um, and then, but he knew everything was growing. Detroit was growing. Automotive was growing. Everything here was, Detroit was Detroit, right? And it was becoming fast and furious. Sure. And so he knew he had to either branch out or develop something new. And so he... He looked west, and he ended up buying a small, another small distributor in Battle Creek. Okay. So he could kind of cover to Jackson, and he could kind of cover to Kalamazoo kind of thing. And he moved to Battle Creek, and 90% of the business there at the time was Kellogg's. So everything else was sort of ancillary to... But it was an entree into a big client or customer. 100%. Okay. Absolutely. So he has the two companies. Um, my brother was born in Battle Creek. And then dad said... And what exactly is he selling to Kellogg's? What's the component or parts? Lighting, fuses, you know, old, old style electrical wire, cable, harnesses, anything that... Installing it or just... No. Nope. Okay. Nope. And there's a, there's a great backstory to installation and electricians and electrical distribution versus electrical repair contract business. And so he comes back and he worked for a company. He had LaSalle. And then before he bought LaSalle, he worked for a company called Turner Electric, which was downtown Detroit. And they were at the time a combination of electrical distributor and electrical contractor. Okay. And at some point, even way before Robinson Patman and all these antitrust and anti-competitive rules came into the marketplace, it was governed that an electrical distributor could not sell to themselves because that would be a price advantage to those that weren't so some so something in the vertical monopoly kind of laws or whatever had to give yeah exactly so my dad ended up buying the distribution business of Turner Electric and it became LaSalle Turner okay and it was a a yearly a long time agreement between and when and, and roughly when is that it's been uh, the, probably the early fifties okay and the, it stayed LaSalle Turner for a long, long time. Um, my dad ended up getting a new building in downtown Detroit, again in the Cass Corridor, right down Brainerd between Cass and Second. And eventually the Turner name came off the building and it just became LaSalle Electric in the mid to late fifties. All right. And it was well run. Um, it was 
again, traditional, and there's a bunch of them in Detroit of, of that genre. Got it. And I can name them all, but it's irrelevant. And, and, and so you're, the, this is your father's business, Holy. Yep. He's Holy. got, okay. Yeah. He had some and, silent investors, but small. And then, um, so what's your earliest memory of what is this business that became a family business? But So I'm the just... youngest by, I'm 10 years younger than my sister, and okay. I'm eight years younger than my brother. All right. So... My memory is going down to the warehouse, mm-hmm. and it was a two-story building with a huge freight elevator, eight, nine years old, just running the sure. elevator up it's and down. You're playing. Right. Yeah. Knew everybody, right? Sure. And it was a family business. knew you. Business. You knew them. Yeah. And, yeah. So I would hang out, you know, and and it was, you know, it was a fun place to go because it was just big, and it was dirty, and it was boxes coming and going, and so that, you know, so I knew everybody. And so I kind of grew up as, you know, the, the little guy running around the office. So you grow up running around it. It's around you. You've got older siblings. You're, you're in school. Were you on a, were you like, you had visions of being part of this business and doing what? No. Never. Not even, only, Wait, only. So what, be, what was it you thought you were, or, or what that you set off to do or you so schooling to It's a great drive? A great segue, Jamie. Um. I, I don't know why it hit me, and I can't even tell you when it hit me, but aviation was my my thing. Okay. And, um, you know, played sports my entire life from Little League all the way up and golfed all the way up. But if there was an airplane, I was absolutely fascinated with it. Made mod- Never made a model car in my life. You, you know, I'd go made to the model, model store on model Woodward models. and I'd come out with whatever airplanes. I used to make models too. My parents thought I did it to sniff glue, but I really wanted to make the models. <laughs> that was a common theme, yeah, I think, I then. Um, and so I, I literally, I, I don't want to say I was an airplane airline geek, but I, I kind of was. And yeah. um, even age 12, 13, 14, I, I knew the airlines. I knew the planes they were flying. Um, it, it, it was a hobby that became a passion. And it, that just reinforced not wanting to go into the family electrical business. So what did you sort of focus on in your studies then? Kind of. So, I mean, high school was high school. I went to Michigan State, and it was marketing and management. Okay. And so at a, at a very kind of 30,000-foot level, first, you know, first two years. And then um, I had a professor at Michigan State, Eugene Jennings, and he was sort of the the early management um, by committee and how to manage people. Uh, he came up with a term that eventually became pretty well known uh, in the 70s and 80s called the crucial subordinate. And I was a big fan. I actually became a, a teacher's assistant for him uh, my senior year. And he's the kind of professor everybody should have at least once. One of those, yeah. One of those. And um, he, he authored several books. He also did a combination class with a guy named Doug Wagenheim at Michigan State, who lasted a long, long time. I think he was there until his 70s. And um, the two of them kind of gave me this entrepreneurial, and that was that term didn't even exist then. Right. But, but that mentality to manage—if you manage yourself, you can manage people. Okay. But if you manage people, 
then you've got to manage yourself first. Right. Right. So, you know, nobody's going to follow you if you don't know where you're going. Yep. And so. And the definition of leaders, they have followers. Exactly. The the looping of that. So to answer your question, at, at that point, even through college, I knew. I wasn't going to go into the family business. Okay. And it was a conversation I had with my dad and with my brother, and they were fine with it. And your brother's in the business at that time? Straight in right from right. school. And did he know he was going to do it at a young age? or? It, it For him, I think it was fait accompli. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And um, so I, le- I graduate. Yep. And during the... You know, this is 79, so... People can relate to these journeys and paths. <laughs> oh, and, and yeah. you know, eventually everything crosses at some point. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up applying to any airline that would basically listen to me. And, and these days, you're still mailing letters. You know, yeah, there's, right. And, there's and no getting other. rejection letters on the other side. One after the yeah. other. And so I ended up, uh, Delta at the time did not have a central human resource or employment office. They did it by regions. Hmm. And then if you got past the gatekeeper, which was each station manager, then you would go to Atlanta for interviews. Okay. So I sent them all over and phone call after phone call after phone call, follow up, you know, yeah. to the point of being annoying. Yeah. And I got a call from a guy. I still remember his name was Jim Summers. And he was the station manager for Delta in Seattle. Okay. And I had this love thing for Seattle. And, I, and at that point, I had never even been there. But I just thought it was so far away, it was pretty cool. And then he gets transferred to Washington, D.C. So he had, at the time, responsibility for what was then National Airport. Dulles had opened and was doing their thing. And Baltimore. In what years are, is this? This is 78, 79. Late 70s. Yeah. So yeah. deregulation had happened. It had. Okay. And it was still in the infancy of how are we going to do this by the airlines. Right. Like, All the consolidation hadn't happened. So Delta was regional. Northwest was still in Seattle, right? That kind of thing. Exactly. So I end up getting an interview. I, they fly me down to D.C. and I interview with this guy. And it was no more than what you and I are doing right here. There was no tests. There was no, you know, rating system. It was a face-to-face. And he said, okay. And he said, um, you know, you're fine for me, but now I got to send you to Atlanta. So I go to Atlanta, do the whole thing, and I'm still... Do you have to pay for your own flight or the no, airline? No, they send. At least no, they we, fly you. Okay. And those were the days when you wore a jacket and a tie yeah, when you flew, right? Airplane, yeah, right. everybody looked nice. And um, he called Atlanta, and the message was that he wanted me. So, and he was hiring about five at the time. So, go down to Atlanta, and you basically come to find out if they're sending you to Atlanta, you got the job. Just don't. Screw it up. Exactly. (laughs) So I come back from Atlanta and I get a phone call at home and I got the job. So when do you want it? When can you, when do you want me to start? And they're like, well, when do you graduate? And I was like, I don't know, June 10th. Well, we'd like you here June 11th. Mm. Okay. So it was the job I'd always wanted. But it was a job. I really didn't know what it was. I was right. just. I was what just, was it? Was it called? Like, what, what was the title? I was a customer service agent, CSA. Okay. Right? 
And it, at those airports, it, they were smaller, okay? So uh, National Airport was the biggest, Dulles was And still small. early computerization of everything, Very, too. yeah. Yep, the, the boarding passes were still pull a sticker off and sure. slap them on the envelope kind sure. of stuff. So I ended up, it was a it was very, very heavily cross-training. So I ended up, I worked the ramp, okay. loaded bags, loaded mail, unloaded lavatories for a week. Then you'd go in and you'd do... So you really learn the business. Oh my God, from the ground up. It's a bad pun, but yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, then you'd go into load planning. So you would actually schedule the weight and balance of the airplane, wow. which now is, again, all centralized all by a computer. Yeah. In those days, it was a graph, and you had weights, and you put you know bags in one and two or three and four, and you dispatch the airplane. And then there was a ticket counter, which was hilarious. Um, but you learn a lot. And I learned even more on that basis from a marketing and a customer service standpoint, because Everybody in Washington, D.C., and it's probably still true today, is important, or so they say. Self-importance. Self-importance. So they would show up at the counter or at the gate. There was no pre-check. There was no security. You just, either you had a bag or you didn't, and you went to the gate. But, you know, can can I get it? Can I get to first class? You know, do you have any empty seats? I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm Jamie Michelson. Yeah, what's what's the, the... Yeah. So I learned to deal with all of that. And then we did cycle schedules. So you'd do a week or a month of mornings and then afternoons and right, then Because it's a 24 7 business. Totally. So I absolutely loved it. It okay. was absolutely, I, I, I could not have been happier because for a week or two, you're on the ramp, you're sweating, you're above the airplane, you're in the airplane, you're below the airplane. It was great. And then you get the technical side, and then you get the customer service side, and you constantly rotated through. And eventually, Delta tells you where you're good. Okay. And there's guys that spend their entire career on the ramp, and they could not be happier. So I ended up going inside, as they would call it, full-time, and kept applying for openings in the marketing department at Delta. Never got it, but Hmm. was still having a lot of fun. But especially working midnights, I got the opportunity to hang out with mechanics. Okay. Because that's when you do the service work. Do all the service work at night. Um, It's still called a, it's called a RON. The plane remains overnight and you do these checks and it would take them a couple hours and our work was done, but we had to be there because the first flight's five in the morning. Mm -hmm. So 3.30, you get the mail and so on. So I hung out with the mechanics when it was mostly midnights and out of nowhere, it it is it wasn't an epiphany. I literally saw a mechanic changing out a landing light on a 727. And it, it's kind of still fresh in my memory. Hmm. And it was a GE box, General Electric sure. aircraft lighting. Yellow, blue. I could still same the logo we've seen for a hundred years, yeah, right? Yeah. And it, I just went, huh. Cause LaSalle Electric was a General Electric distributor. Okay. So there, always or became one? Always. Oh, okay. Yep. From from the day my start my dad started it, it had been a GE distributor. So came home. Uh, this was 81 now. My love of aviation had been only 
It was an appetizer. Sure. Right? We Heightened had, instead of so it didn't you didn't have this I glamorized this business, idealized it, then you get in it and don't want to do it. You actually loved it more. Okay. I did. And it it still is to me a glamorous industry. Yeah. And, and there there is something majestic about planes flying and landing. There is, and it's also very incestual because the people that are in aviation, they all move around, but they're still they, in aviation. Yeah, okay. Right? You've got you've so got that says they love the business. Absolutely. The David Nealman, who started JetBlue, he's from Berkeley, right? Okay. Another guy didn't want anything to do with automotive. Started his own ideas, and then you know People Express. If you remember them, I do. And then you go into the you know JetBlue was sort of a second or third reiteration. You had you know Lorenzo down with Texas International, and they merged with Continental. All these guys know Southwest, each other. Southwest, of course. Yeah. Oh, Herb Kelleher just. Did, we could do an hour on, on the personalities on the, the personalities too. of Southwest, hundred um, percent. So I came home and I just came home to come home because you fly for free, right? <laughs> and Delta was still Delta; it wasn't Delta Northwest. Right. None of that had even been mergers hadn't even thought about. They were still dealing with Their the regions. deregulation and the regions. Exactly right. So sat down with my dad and I said, you know, it was a hey look, you know, I got an idea, and. So I said, I know enough now to know the lighting that goes on an airplane. And I've asked around and I've looked at boxes and where they're coming from and stuff. And I said, we're a GE distributor. So what do you think if we start an aviation lighting business here? He said, go for it. You want to try it? You know, so he was happy. My mom was thrilled because she gets everybody back home. And uh, ended up that my dad set up a meeting um, with a guy who was in charge of the Midwestern region for GE Lighting. And, you know, you always, it, it, you, can, you can be sort of anti-ethereal if you want, but you always look for signs that something is good. Right? Okay. Yeah. And my dad had known this guy for years. They played golf and they, you know, they were social friends. And, and in those days, you know, the two o'clock lunch and, yeah. you know, the relationship five, part of it. 100%. So anyways, um, the guy's last name was Lansing. So I'm a Sparty. Hmm. This guy has all the information on GE lighting and his name's Lansing. So I'm like, okay, that's a good, you know, it's a good sign. Could not have gone better. He hmm. said right to us he said i absolutely know nothing about the aircraft lighting business at ge but i will find out and so to his honesty and credibility he came back and he said it is entirely fragmented ah. there isn't a source and i want doors open and you're still working for delta at this point so you're exploring this exactly and, yep. okay so end up coming, spending some more months in D.C. And at the time, I had met Maureen. We got yeah. married yeah. a few years later. And she was actually at Georgetown, so she was leaving to go get her MBA. And I'm like, okay, so you're going there, and i am got a chance to do something. So I came home. And that was in middle of 81. Got it. And uh, we were still, at that point, I, I should leap backwards a little bit. The company moved out of Detroit to a bigger warehouse in Livonia. Okay. And 
kept the building in Detroit to store bigger stuff. But new building, built it um, right on 696, and it was, uh, you know, at the time, Livonia was... The growing suburbs as well as the distribution path for the highways. Exactly. So you join a family business, not there's an open position interview for it, or even position created by higher-ups. You kind of created your own position and an offshoot, or what is, what's the word they use now, like at Amazon, the adjacency thing in the business, right? The thing that's that sort of attached. probably be totally a true statement. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I, I literally started, um, it, you know, both my dad and my brother suggested I spend six months in the warehouse just to see how the whole operation worked. And a little bit of technology was starting to come in, but you know the switchboard was still so a switchboard. Who who was your first airline customer then? So I, I was said, it able to be Delta? <laughs> not even close. Oh. But there's a great Delta story if we could get there. Sure. Um, it I literally sat on the phone in the warehouse. So I I just haul all morning, and then I'd pick up the phone in the warehouse. I didn't have a desk up front. Okay. And I'd start calling and calling and calling. And I ended up um, getting in touch with a guy in Chicago, a guy named Bruce Davis. We actually became very good friends for a number of years. He had left TWA and became the head of purchasing at the original, original, original Midway Airlines in Chicago. Okay. They kind of reinvented Midway Airport because Midway went bankrupt three times. They did, they did three reiterations and eventually if they had stayed as the original, they'd still be going today. But they overgrew their own ambitions. Got so got my first order out of Midway and placed an order with GE. And it might have been 500 bucks. I don't even know. But it got me going, right? Okay. And, you know, all you need is the first order. Yeah. And the flame has been <laughs> stoked, right? So it literally, Jamie, it it being single and had moved home, had an apartment down in Farmington Hills. It just it I don't want to say it consumed me, but it was just it was so hard it was fun. Right. And so we ended up I ended up just gradually growing and growing and growing. And research, talked to people, started traveling. Um, you know, phone calls were great, but... Got to go see these people you gotta see and them. go meet with them. And you have some credential, you have some some credibility because you've got some Correct. airline customers. Exactly. So the pace of it was very slow, but like any new business, it, it picked up speed and it, it picked up volume. And eventually I picked up one person in the office came over to my side and helped me with <laughs> the airline business. So we were running these sure. these two things. And it was kind of all mine to run. Um, but as you looked at it as a division or as something new, it still there, you know, still had to make money. You know, you can't do things at a loss forever. So um, I knew I had to pick up Speed. Okay. And so you asked about Delta, and uh, I developed this relationship with a guy, and he's got to be 90 now, I think. <laughs> um, guy's name was Truman Davis, and Truman was the 
consummate Southern gentleman. And so I went down there and he had a, he loved golf and, and so did I. And so we, you know, I was in my twenties and he was in his fifties at the time. And we became very, very good friends hmm. before we even wrote a purchase order. And he was buying his lighting for all of Delta Airlines from an automotive lighting oh, house wow. in Forest Park, Georgia, and or College Park, excuse me, in College Park, Georgia. And this guy over there, it was called Go Air. So it used to be Go Auto. And then he opened Go Air because okay, he had sure. to name it something because, you know, why are you getting lighting from, yeah. you know, an auto parts store? So that opened the door for me. I went back to GE and they're like, yep, it's they're legit. And so are you. You know, there's no geographical limits on this business. So take a run at it. Hmm. Quoted Delta quoted their contract every two years, and I got on the next bid list, and I got maybe 20% of the business. But that was such a ginormous step from sure. just Midway and some of the other smaller ones. And Jamie, from there, um, we're probably talking 87, okay. 86, 87. It, well, yeah, because Maureen and I got married in 88. So I was gone the entire time. I'd come home and look at mail and then go back on the road. I uh, back on the road. And it it just went. And because uh, the airlines they have no choice on this lighting. I mean it they and, and, didn't and when we're talking about the lighting, we're talking about the safety lights and things that are on the outside of the aircraft as well as the lighting inside. So the old for, the old spin when you'd walk into somebody was cockpit, cabin and exterior. That so was all, the Okay. Yeah. You know and CCE and you, you know, most of it was GE. Some of it was Chicago Miniature, which is a, a they made only miniature lamps and a bunch of other little small specialty players that were in the market. And um, it was it was expanding. Airlines were expanding. The market was expanding. And then you get into, you know, the the growth cycle is success begets success. Sure. So I could go into United and say, hey, I've got the Delta contract, whatever. So I made this really strong push to Delta is that I don't remember the actual wording of it, but I basically guaranteed them I would have product to you within two to three days. Sure. So and, now you've got speed and right. the whole just-in-time thing starting. And right. And then okay. and actually, that JIT thing actually was sort of a, a pull-off of automotive. Sure, because you've got Detroit sort of around. Yeah, so I'm listening. Yeah, right? yeah. And so Delta, I, 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 they kind of won up to me. And they're like, okay, if you can do it in three days by truck or you know UPS or Roadway Express, whatever was hauling boxes at the time, and... They said, can you just get our material to Detroit Airport? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm 30 minutes right, away. Right down the road. They said, okay. And, and so I said, I knew exactly where they were going. I said, you can cut your inventory because they would have three or four months inventory. I said, you can, at this point, carrying costs were becoming an issue, right? Sure. Because interest rates were up. And so the timing was there. And I said, you cut your inventory to one week and they looked at me like they had just seen something that they had never even considered for a replaceable part, right? And 
every lighting is a no-go item. If you don't have a landing light, plane not going. Exactly. So okay. they said, okay, if you can get it to Detroit, we'll fly it on Delta Cargo to wherever, well, to Atlanta. And so in talking to their distribution people, I said, so why just Atlanta? You have a hub in Atlanta. You have a hub in, at the time in Dallas. Salt Lake was mini. You know, it was, was mm -hmm. a mini hub. Cincinnati was big. LaGuardia, JFK were big. I'll ship there. And they're like, well, we don't do that. And I said, but you're handling it three times to get it on an airplane. I can cut it down, or four. I can cut it down to where you handle it twice. You pick it up. I drop it at Detroit. You fly it to wherever. You take it out. You put it on an airplane. And that became sort of the model that launched LaSalle into the lighting. So Got it. You know the product, studied the product. I went to Boeing, met with engineers. So I, I'm not an engineer by trade, <clears throat> and I don't want to be one. <laughs> but it's a very, it's very, it's again, it's simple in its complexity. And so you meet with engineers, you meet with purchasing, you meet with their distribution teams. That model of getting product handled less, so simple, reduces breakage, reduces inventory, and gets it on the so you're faster. So you're, you're a distributor, and yet the product itself that you're selling and distributing doesn't change, but the innovation is in how it's distributed or what kind of system. Absolutely correct. And and some pricing, I'm sure, and, and contract. Pricing, eventually. The bigger, you know, the problem is when you're growing and you start to take business from other people. Then you, people notice. You and, get noticed. Yes. And, you know, who is this guy? Because you're, you're also attaching yourself to an industry that was growing. I mean, there were more airlines, more jets, right? Um, and, you know, you, you've got, you you just nailed it. You You've got to be better lucky than good. Yeah, both, right? right? Yeah. But, you know, they don't usually happen at the same time, right? Right. And so the timing to enter this ginormous market, Airbus, you know, what is this thing coming out of France? Right? Sure. See, so now Boeing has a competitor because of the power. Of the and industry. therefore creates their competition and they're looking for something better, right? So as you're going along doing this, uh, uh, the, the the you go you you start this division we'll call it right mm -hmm. whatever you called it yeah it, it becomes does it become half of LaSalle Electric's business or yeah. does it become eighty percent or what happens it, it over eventually it? became over eighty five percent by the by the by twenty eleven but the other part of the business doesn't shrink so the whole business is growing it's growing but Detroit was going through the as the airlines did better the automotive so the core business was was correct was, so it it helped offset growth maybe not at the same level of rate of growth but right and and, and it was truly almost like a yin and a yang because you know the Great Lakes Steel and Ford Foundry were really good customers and Great Lakes gets bought by National Steel and. I had a very short discussion with... And you're, you weren't very involved in that part of the business, right? You're just if they doing... wanted lighting in a plant, you know, explosion-proof lighting and stuff like that, we had product lines that did that. But no, I was... So the dynamic... Mm -hmm. So your father's... Is this is going on and the, the aircraft part starts to really dial up. Uh, how old's your father at this point? So dad, well, geez, <clears throat> dad was born in 1910. So let's say he was in his 70s. So he's in his 70s, still active in the business. <clears throat> waning. 
And yeah. so do you, what, did you guys have meetings every month with the family, the, the leadership, uh, quarterly? Yeah. How, how did that, what was that thing? It was sort of always just a rolling conversation. Like, you know, you know, Jim, how's everything going? It's going good, Dad. Okay. And and were you and your sister involved in the business? Not at all. So you and your brother are in it? Correct. Are you owners at that point in the business? At that point, we were. Yeah. And and just talk quickly or long, I don't care. How did that process go? Yeah, that was a tough one. Um, and I, I won't go into a lot of the the details of that, but, um, eight years older, you know, I was a baby by eight years. And, um, as, as dad was winding down, it was obvious my brother would take over at least the electrical part sure, and he would run that. And then I had my own, you know, nobody talked about silos then, but I had my own group and I just needed more people. I needed more capital, needed more space. And it was just sort of this, this, floating 50 50 and, and like you just asked and then 55 45 and then 60 40 and um my brother kind of became the more financial person okay of the company and um but you know if you're going to run something you you need to be an expert in all areas right and to your point, as we've talked about, when you get to that third generation, I, I guess I'm a second and a half generation. You know, my dad was in it for so long. Right. But he also had me when he was 47. Sure. So, um, so you know, I was, you know, I was always the baby. Yeah. And, and you know, like most babies, you can probably get away with a little more. Did you and your brother, did you buy the interest in the business from your father? Did how yeah, it was a, it was in those days, it, that's all you could do. Yeah. Right. And so we did. And so it, it became him and I. Okay. And dad always kind of, he, he would check in, you know, he, he lived to be 98. And so he was, he was with it. I mean, he always wanted to know what was going on, but he, um, I don't know. As as a guardian angel, I, I think he kind of always looked over us. That's nice. And as I, you know, well, what would be because you said generation and a half, but like, is there some found? You know, your dad is sort of a founder. Some founders' motto or credo that you and your brother followed. I mean, are there some famous words of wisdom that? Stick no, with you? you know, the one thing my dad. That grew the business with him in in the old days, you know, the, again, back to automotive and steel mm -hmm. in the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s is your handshake was worth everything. Okay. Right? Yeah. And um, my my dad kind of lived by that, you know. Sure. He got stung a few times, um, but, you know, you, you, you get more bees with honey. So yeah. he had a lot of good friends in the industry, both on the customer side and the supplier side. And um, you take somebody at their word. And you know some timeless principles, kinds of things. Very much, so. yeah, yeah. And and so now you and your brother are running this growing business. How how about the two of you? Is like how did did you meet? You know the old in the business on the business. Did you when you got together as families? Did you talk about business all the time? So you're able to have that separation. We had it. We had the separation. Those boundaries. Or um, and in there were so many. If you leap forward into the. Uh, probably the the bankruptcy train <clears throat> started um, in the airline industry, mm. and it went through you know three major 
time frames of these airline bankruptcies. And, you know, it used to be if you went bankrupt, you liquidated, right, in Chapter 7. And then there were the Chapter 11s where you could keep operating, keep operating, dump all your debts, dump all your payables. And so you as a supplier to these companies, were you hurt greatly by those? We took or? some... We, we took a pretty good pounding sure. um, a couple times. And um, let's just say marketing and finance didn't always agree on how to handle <laughs> bankruptcies. And so along those lines, um, I, I grew more uh, passionate about my customers because it when you sell, you get to know people because it's the same people over and over. And of the 200 some odd airlines that I ended up dealing with or 300 after I sold the company, a lot of them were personal friends, right? And you knew their, you knew their spouses, you knew their kids, um, you'd meet some of them. And looping all the way back for a second to, to Truman from Delta, he was, we were sort of as really fun answering board back and forth mm. for each other. And uh, Truman and his wife, Marianne, actually came to Maureen and mine's wedding. All right. And, you know, and it That's wasn't, yeah. It, yeah, it wasn't a wedding of customers and it wasn't a wedding right. of suppliers, but he was the friend, right? Nice. And, and I think to this day, he knows that he helped me launch myself in the company into that so and he did right by delta at the same time uh, yeah 100 percent. yeah so you 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 mentioned it briefly there yeah uh, you know the the sale of the business so as you're going along you and your brother and you're running this business were you regularly approached by people who wanted to acquire you all? No, and here here comes the circle. Okay. Here comes so the circle of life. This is where it really gets sort of exciting for the the next generation. Is um, I knew we had to do something to go to the next biggest level. And people were looking at merging and stuff in the aerospace industry. And a lot of it was to stave off the damages of bankruptcies. Okay. So, you know, my philosophy was if 10 airlines go bankrupt and it ended up actually being more than wow. 50 airlines actually filed bankruptcy between um, interesting. The late we sit here in 2023 with stuff going on in banking and tech. You know, there's much more backstop for all these big I, I companies. Will, I will. So it, nobody's allowed to fail anymore. If anybody's interested, I can send you a list, and you can Google it. Number we'll of put, airline. We'll put some show notes together or something. And it is staggering. And a lot of them were small, trying to get big. Okay. Nobody was big and wanted to get small. So, <laughs> you know, everybody wanted, you know, if he bought 10 airplanes, I got to buy 12, you know. And in the regional market, that was the, that was a bad, bad idea. Um, but when you look back is my philosophy was the aerospace industry was still going to thrive. Okay. You know, Boeing was going to backstop airlines because they need them as customers, right. right? Boeing military had backstopped military since, you know, the day of the first rocket. Um, Airbus, brand new, making it, you know, this whole European consortium thing. Sure. They're going to backstop the the European and, the, and part of the, you know, the Indochina business. And so all of that gave me the confidence that the reasons that caused their bankruptcies were almost always the same. Fuel was out of sight. Okay. 
Overhead was unmanageable. Inventories were incredible. And my thought was it, it was an opportunity gain, not a customer loss. And so if 50 airlines go bankrupt, maybe two or three won't survive this, right? Or maybe five or seven. Okay. But, you know, I'd, I'd rather be the last guy in the bull ring than the first guy out. So I really had to continually make a business plan that we could agree on to go forward because a lot of guys dropped out. They're like, I don't want to do this bankruptcy. It's too hard. It's too hard on the heart and it's, you know, it's too hard on the soul and I don't want to do this. So you mean the suppliers like suppliers. You of electrical components drop out? All okay. of them. Yeah. You know, or other components or, you know, serving the airline industry. Absolutely. So there was a, hmm. there was a little Darwinism there too. Sure. You, how many times am I going to put my hand on the stove, right? And it keeps getting burned. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I guess if you look at that, that to me gave me the opportunity to continue to sell these airlines. So mm. they'd go bankrupt and it kind of became a, it was. But it you was, had to be like a risk manager too, because you had to sort of assess which airline, who's going to be the winners and losers in that industry, didn't you, a little bit? We lost. We, we definitely lost yeah. our You still tried to figure out who would be the winners. Right. And the surprising thing was, Jamie, was. Airlines, again, being a, a glamorous industry, was was just wrought with debt and yeah. and mismanagement because yeah. the, the golden years had obviously, at that point, had had come and gone. So, but that glamour of it attracts capital time one, and time absolutely. again, and burns it up time and time again. I wish I would have met you then. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it became something that I would go to an airline that maybe we had their contract or maybe they were just doing spot buys with us. And I said, look, you're bankrupt. You got two ways of doing this. I would take all your inventory back. And I did this a couple of times. I did it Oof. at TWA and I did it at Continental. I'll take all your inventory back. I'll give you a credit against your receivables and we'll start fresh. Mm. You will start as pick one, but say, I'll start as Continental Airlines debtor in possession, right? So we had so many airlines that had DIP after their name. It was sort of a, just part of their acronym. Oh goodness. And so they would agree and they would get a credit. The bankruptcy magistrates had to approve it. And they're like, yeah, get parts out, get credit. So we got parts back. And a lot of people didn't think of this because they would just sit there and, okay, I'm going to get five cents on the dollar, but I'd rather take everything back and get a long-term agreement. So I kind of, when the bankruptcies were really just fighting. And you said your brother was very much sort of like finance lead. So the two of you are working these models out and, together. And not really agreeing that that was the best okay. plan. And without going into a lot of the details, it was... Yeah, I've not met your we, brother. We, it's not, there's, they always say, you know, par partnerships. And I mean, we're not trying to knock anyone, but there's some tension clearly with the stresses you're all are dealing stress with. Stress was huge. Business. Right. And so I developed this sales and I had other people in the office now working. You know, my, my group was getting bigger and bigger. And so through all these bankruptcies and then the bankruptcies kind of stopped. And... The airline started to order. The airline started to order new airplanes. Boeing's working on new designs, and everything sort of starts to go forward now. And 
So delta, let's, we'll circle back to delta again. And, it, and everything happens, you know, everything changes in Atlanta, right? And so my career changed in Atlanta. Delta does this huge meeting in Atlanta. And they called me down and they said, you've got to be here and you're going to meet everybody, like the chairman, the president, the vice president. Okay. They're, all in, they're all going to be in this meeting and come on down. Said, okay, fine. So it was a little bit of a blindside, which wasn't really Delta's uh, MO of how to mm. do business. So I show up and it's at corporate headquarters. I always met in the hangar and this one was at corporate. So it kind of gives you a different feel, right? Sure. So I go walking in there and we walk into this room and I, I realized it pretty quick. Everybody who was a supplier was invited that's what I was going to ask. Was it just meeting. you or other key yeah, suppliers? Everybody. And I don't remember the exact numbers, Jamie, but there was probably 300, 400 suppliers wow. in that room. And the president of Delta got up and he said, you know. What kind of room holds three, four? It's an auditorium type yeah, of thing? Yeah. Okay. And he was on the first floor of their corporate office. And he said... Look around you, and what Delta wants to do is, out of this entire group of you here, we want to come out of this with no more than 10 suppliers. Okay, yeah. Right? The so agencies go through this too, yeah. Yeah, so we've, you know, the airlines had never seen this before. So I knew a lot of the guys because there was a, there's a convention every year called the Air Carriers Purchasing Conference. It, it's probably the biggest boondoggle mm -hmm. in aviation. And it's still, it's still going. It's huge. But I knew people. And so we're all sitting there and it's kind Ooh. of a wink and a nod, right? Like, you know, what you want to meet in room A or room B or whatever. And Delta said, we'll meet tomorrow at the airport Marriott hotel in their ballroom. And you guys stay here and you figure it out. Wow. And it was bizarre, right? So I made eye contact literally and people were tapping each other on the shoulder and it was kind of like draft day, right? What do you have to offer? What do you got? You know? Sure. And I ended up again. It, it's, and these are still alliances or partnerships. You're not buying each other or anything. No, that was the like thing, that. right? It'd take too long. Right. But but Delta said, at Just this you point, guys figure it you out. figure it out. So what's the first thing you want is to reduce supplier base. What's the second thing they want is to buy it cheaper. Right. And I already had lead times, right? So I already had sort of a, an ace in the hole. And so I ended up sitting down eventually by later that day with five guys. And the five of us formed on the spot, this entity. And one company was much bigger than all the rest. Okay. And they said, we'll take the lead, but we've just got to share information, share it. And he was, he was actually, one of them was headquartered in Atlanta. So now we already had a where he had a warehouse and he had space. So wow. we were kind of one step up right then. So that actually became this acronym of the five companies. And um, not to telegraph the ending of the movie, but the one guy who became eventually the vice president of the biggest company many, many years later ended up buying us. Ah, okay. So, But so now Delta does the mm -hmm. 
we're going to, we've got clout. We need simplification of our supplier base. We want to purchase better, all of that. Right. You do this consortium. You're still, so you, you stay in the game. You're not one of the ones in the, that auditorium who's out. Correct. And then how much later than that did you decide we need, and the business is going global, aerospace, you refer to it now, right? It's an international right. industry. And you, it wasn't a, we got to join the big guys, right? It was just, or was it? It's just to be able to compete, you have to be part of something larger. Yeah, so I had a niche specialty <clears throat> and everybody was, nobody was paying attention to lighting still. It all was right. all about tires, avionics, all the big ticket items, you know, airframe. And I'm just sitting there selling lighting. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, sitting there, it wasn't easy, but it was, mm. it was really fun. I mean, I loved every day of the job. And so Delta create, it, it gave a lot of people either insight or outside. I'm in or I'm out. And because. That, and did the other airlines quickly. Copy they all Delta? tried. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, the elephant in the room that nobody ever talked about was Boeing. What What is Boeing going to do, right? So if you leap forward to, God, I wrote it down the other day. Um, if you leap forward to 2004, the bankruptcies were pretty much over. Um, I was spending extra time at Boeing. Because okay. they, Boeing has a spares division. They have a ginormous, biggest warehouse I've ever seen <laughs> right at the end of SeaTac Airport. And it's called the SeaTac okay. Distribution Center. And that SDC was built to get any part to any airline in the world within 24 hours. Wow. Anywhere. And it's phenomenal. But Boeing had production purchasing and they had spares purchasing. And, you know, it was... It was the lightning on the horizon. Like, they're going to come. If they're going to come, how are they going to come at us? So and they've let the lighting after the original equipment correct. be the G stuff from these other distributors, correct. not from them. Correct. Until that point. But, uh, but Boeing always had product on their shelf for Air Botswana. And no offense to Air Botswana. Yeah. But nobody would give them credit. So the only place they could get a part was Boeing. So Boeing still had to buy parts to sell to these second and a half or third world airlines. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you can kind of see how massive this industry has become. And so I started spending more and more time at Boeing, got to know engineers, things like that. And it, it this probably only happens maybe two or three times in your life when you you think about, you get a feeling or you get an idea or an epiphany, right? There's a major shift coming or happening. Absolutely. And, and run I, with it, get run over, any of those kind it, of things. It, I was getting more and more frustrated because I wanted to grow and I wanted to expand. And others were starting to take a look at lighting and a couple big multi-global aviation companies were looking and one of them had approached me to come to work for them but they didn't do their homework I don't think I never asked the guy a second time but I don't even think he knew I was owner I think he thought I was just you just a sales guy who well, had an a idea. good sales guy at this right company. so you yeah. can you do that over here sure and so anyways um Maureen and I had taken the kids to 
Hawaii. And this is going to sound really corny, but it's the honest to God truth. And, you know, I, I was gone so much, but it was, you know, family time was important too. Sure. And Jamie, I was literally, we were at a hotel on the big island and I was in a spinning class. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And out of nowhere, I said to myself, or I came to myself, he said, you can do this. You, you don't need all this other noise in the office and all these different decisions and all these, I need approvals, I need double approvals, I need, you know, yada, yada. And it, I literally, I think I, I literally went back to Maureen, like, I said, why don't we just buy the company? And so it, it was like, yeah, let's think about that, right? But it, that, if I was a flame, now it was like, a forest fire. When you say buy the company, you talking about buying your My brother, brother out. out of his portion of the company. Okay. Correct. So everything happens for a reason, another metaphor that applies. I was literally playing golf, like, I don't know if it was two weeks later or a month later with a guy who I actually went to Michigan State with. And we're on the golf course, and I, I said to, to John, I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. And he worked for, at the time, you know, it was LaSalle Bank, and then it became, you know, they went through, what, five iterations? Right. Yeah, forget. All the airlines are doing that. The banks are banks doing the are same doing thing. At yeah. the right. exact same time. And Agencies were doing the same thing. Right. And so he said, yeah, I, I can put together a meeting. And so without all the gory details, because that would be a whole other podcast, um, Maureen and I, we, we literally put everything we had to buy the company. And so bought my brother out. Okay. And um, that, so we've leapt forward now to 2004. All right. So it's hard to believe it's 2023, but it was 19 years ago. And um, bought him out and it was, it was the right thing to do. He was happy and he left. That was it. Okay. And um, since then, or at that moment, um, we told the employees what had happened and what we were doing and stuff, and um, everybody stayed. Great. And so, as we talk about generation excellence as a podcast, right? Your you know father, even to grandfather roots, you and your brother. Now you're owner of this evolved business. Correct. Did you have at that time thoughts of legacy like? My kids are going to get involved in this. One hundred percent. Okay. Yep. So Maureen and I were married in '88. Um, you know, Ian was born in '89, Megan '93, Brendan '97. So they were all, you know, at four years apart, doing their teenager to, you know, the teen years and younger. Yep. Um, and then from 2004 to 2011, the company grew exponentially. Wonderful. And um, we t I took a lot of the breaks off. Um, and the electrical people, I, I appointed one guy, two guys, actually, to be the head of that electrical group. And I said, you guys have done this your whole life. You go do that. And sure, I'll be present. And that growth is in the aerospace? No, these are the electrical guys. So, that's, so, the, so the original Roots business grew. It did. Dramatically, okay. Right. So we took the brakes off, and then they they had some ideas, and 
I just kind of let them go. I let them run, not let them go out of the business. I let them go with their ideas. So they did great. When we opened a secondary place up in, in uh, up, got like 23 in Shane or somewhere up there. Um, got a warehouse up there. They wanted to do some east side business and, okay. and that was fine. So they had all sorts of ideas. And at the end of the day, you know, I was still, I guess, the yes or no guy. Um, but the aerospace airline business was just growing, growing, growing. How many people are you total at this 35. Point? Okay. Um, at max. And the one thing I think any generational owner will tell you, though, is I had sisters working for me. I had husband and wives working for <laughs> me. Same here. You got yeah. it here, right? Okay. Yeah. So you know, right? And you know their kids. And I talk about this a lot whenever I talk to somebody about the business is when you know 35 people, every decision you make affects somewhere around sure. 200 Yeah, it's not a faceless corporation. One, yeah, yeah you, you, it's it's a lot more, it can tie you up, but you have you, you know those are the ramifications. Absolutely. Yeah. So, in you know, if you've got a heart, you, yeah. you understand this, right? And so the... I don't like the term buy-in, but the acceptance or the buy-in of the growth and what mm. we were doing, and it it just could not have gone better. Price oh, went up, and if you going back now back to Boeing, we the biggest credibility and the biggest strength, and to be very honest, in the back of my head was the three kids, right, and Ian, the oldest, Megan, and and Brendan, and do you want to come into the business? And they were all on their own path at, at this point, starting, right? Right. And so we're just growing along and growing and being I mean, parents. and did you have family constitution documents, written rules about family coming into the business? Or no. Were you trying? Okay. No. We had discussions about so it. they hadn't codified it. any of that kind of stuff? No. I mean, we all have a, you know, uh, a plan. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't have any plans, which right. you probably see in a lot of, especially third generations. I go, oh, I got the business. Well, okay. You know, was it 14% of third generations survive? Three it, to it, the next. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's what they say. And it's right. usually because they don't all fail. They go and become part of something else or people aren't interested or it gets too complicated or there's all those reasons. All of the above. Part of why I do in the podcast, just study those different paths, you know, right. educate myself cheaply. Exactly. Uh, but free is pretty cheap. Free is great. And um, so as the company grew, I knew I had to get into Boeing. And in the back of my mind always was um, we basically had, after a few years, we had, you know, we had no debt. So uh, Boeing is an original, you're an original supplier, not fulfilling stuff after they've sold the aircraft to someone. Right. And, and if I talk to anybody who's in the procurement school at Michigan State, this, what I'm going to tell you next, just doesn't even exist in their in their orbit. It's, they just can't. Okay. Because we've, we, we've dealt with procurement at federal, state, right. client level, so we kind of get it a little bit. So I got a, I got a tip, and I, again, knowing the inside of airplanes, um, and in the middle of all this, I got my pilot's license. So I'm not only flying now as a hobby, because I knew it was never going to be a career, but it, it was just 
the passion. You never lost that passion. Never for, lost for aircraft Correct. And flying. Okay. And so I ended up going to Boeing a lot, and um, on every airplane made, especially at the wide body factories, there's two. Is there's somewhere between seven thousand and twelve thousand cable ties on every airplane. So every wiring harness sure. is ziplocked every three inches, six inches, twelve inches, or whatever. Amazing. And um, a big national um, account had the cable tie business, but it was strictly a me too item for them. So here I go again, where I'm developed. We were a, we were a distributor for the cable tie company. It was called Panduit out of Chicago, and met with engineering, met with um, procurement. And we got a chance to bid on their cable tie business for Boeing. And the local guy, national company with an air, with a, a pretty big aerospace presence in the Northwest. They did all of Boeing's facility lighting, which okay. is unbelievably, you know, it's probably a five, six million dollar contract at the time. And um, we got it. We got the cable tie contract. Hmm, and great. nobody in their right mind could understand this. <clears throat> and we ran a dedicated, uh, we had a little mom and pop trucking company. We ran a dedicated pallets um, at the end of every week out to Boeing. They had it in three days. The truck would go straight through. Mm. Um, they actually lowered their inventory again. And then Boeing lighting, right? They're buying lighting. So Jamie and, you know, in your office, the guy next door is a lighting guy. So I go over and talk to him. And we end up getting the lighting business too. And Boeing's pricing was different because they're the OEM. Sure. They would then transfer those some of that product to Boeing distribution, mm. and they were also competitor on a very small scale because they, at the time, they really did That competitive well. threat you saw a while back. Correct. Now you've got a way to... Not sidestep it, but be right. in the It's game. still my product, right? Right. So if it's on Airbots on a shelf, well, at least it came from me, okay. right? Not the other guys. So anyways, um, that gave us so much street credibility because I could walk into an airline anywhere on the globe and say that I got this airline, I got that airline, I got British Airways, and I got Virgin. we're direct with Boeing. And I am Boeing's approved supplier. And over the... Over about 11 years, Jamie, we got um, Boeing Supplier um, of the Year Award. Oh, that's nice. For our commodity. So, again, I had you the credibility. Them well. I did. Yeah. yeah. And they're tough. They were very, I'm very sure. tough. Yeah. And so we earned it. And so with that credibility, it grew. We never got into Airbus Direct because of all of the European modeling of and I, their version of antitrust, antitrust and right. source and all that. Exactly. Okay. So that never happened. Um, but that was fine because I could compete with Airbus spares because they did the same thing out of Humber. And um, so that grew. And eventually something's going to happen that's going to define if you're going to survive or not. Right. And I got a call one night. It was probably, I don't know, not being dramatic, but eight or nine o'clock at night. And it was the head of my purchasing group at Boeing. And he said, hey, Jim, this is, his name is Mike. And he said, I got some news. I said, okay. Whoa, what's going Good on? Good or bad, yeah. And he said, uh, Boeing just, we just are going to announce in the next hour that 
we've bought Aviol, and Aviol was my biggest competitor. And they were down in Dallas, mm. probably at the time a seven, eight hundred, nine hundred million dollar company. They had lighting, they had cable ties, mm. they had everything. So uh, I said, okay. And I said, what about our contract? And he said, well, we're kind of working, we're going to work through details. Oh, so how much time left on your existing contract? Like three years. So it was a five-year contract. And so I said, okay. Um, I said, let me just think about this and, you know, call you in the morning kind of thing. And I I guess I was up probably most of the night. sure. And the next morning I flew to Seattle. I was there by noon and went right into the office. And I literally had sketched out an entire reasoning board. Price wasn't even part of it, right? right? It was overhead and reduction and handling. Everything that I kind of built as the foundation. And I said, here's what I've got. Here's what you've got. Here's what you're dealing with if you try and integrate this with them. And I, and I know them. I know them really well. I compete right. with them every day of the week. And I was there the whole day. And I think I flew back on the red eye. I don't remember. And um, I kept the business. Wow. So it got a lot of attention. But Boeing was also growing so fast on the distribution side. I literally were selling products now that was getting to Boeing. Some of it ended up at Aviol. And their vice president called me one day and he goes, I've got your product on my shelf sitting right next to my product. And it's the same part. Crazy. I said, I, it, it's, it's all I can say. It's why they're honoring their agreement. You still got the contract. Right. So and then but you, you know, selling of the business because you got, yeah. you know, next gen. I mean, what? So were you actively looking for someone to buy? We had had people, some very so now people start knocking on your door a little bit, exactly. right? Exactly, so, reaching out, they're chat testing the water. Correct. So I bought the company out from my brother in '04. In 2010, um, the aviation market was just rock solid, right? Okay. And you had Delta had merged with Northwest, and yep. United and Continental. You can name them all. Right. Pan Am disappeared. Eastern disappeared, you know, and those people showed up at other places. So all these relationships were still there. And with that, it was a consolidation now that, you know, nobody predicted it would continue, continue at that pace. So now every contract is worth more dollars. Sure. And if you lose it, absolutely. More downside. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So. 20, 2004, 2011, and by 2011, you know, Ian's in college and he's coming out of college and stuff. And we talked a lot about what what's the next step. It's a family business. And um, without all the details, but some of the interesting parts was you, we had been approached a couple of times, venture capital wasn't right. interested in that. Um we got a call. I, I was actually at a meeting, and then I got a call from one of the VPs from back in that Delta circle. That group you met in so the early days. Yeah. Now I bring it back to that. And um, it was just an off-the-cuff, hey, are you interested in selling? And I said, you know, always interested, but right. you know, never committed. 
And so we did have a meeting, and I, I guess I could give you a little bit of the inner story, but again, my dad's province of looking over me in a way. So I fly down to Miami, and um, we meet at a restaurant, and the guy I did the deal with, we were, we were very good friends, and he eventually became my boss once we sold. And he said, you're going to meet a guy, you're going to meet the president. And I was like, okay, you know, ex-military fighter pilot, you know, straight-laced, Yeah. right? But they all worked for a company, and the owner of that company was another guy who started from nothing. His name okay. was Eamon Corey. And, uh, but Eamon wasn't there, but this other guy shows up, and we're sitting at the bar having a drink, and he comes in, we start talking. And... He said, so you're from Michigan? And I said, yeah. He goes, yeah, I, I grew up in Michigan. Oh. Said, wow, where? Bloomfield. Okay. Right. Down the street from where and, you And live. I really didn't get a lot out of his bio. I didn't get that. And then the wheels start, I'm like, wait a minute. And he belongs to the same club we belong to. He grew up there. Hmm. And his dad was a member there. And his sister was on the swim team's... Um, the swim committee when we were like the whole circle of life just wow. got real small. And what company, what organization is this? At the time it, it was called BE Aerospace. BE Aerospace. BE Aerospace okay. out of Miami. Um, and they came from the hardware line. Okay. Aircraft hardware, which is bearings. Bearings are huge, right? Sure, they wear out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort of lights, but... but yeah, they did all, anything of hardware that, you know, clamps, rivets, bolts, all of that. And had they had their eyes on you for a while? I think for a bit because um, the guy I, that brought the deal together, we we would always kind of talk if we saw each other at conventions and stuff. But what it was, Jamie, they... They, again, were phenomenal in their entrepreneurial spirit was they wanted to take, their plan was to get the best five to seven people that are best in class mm -hmm. in their product, right? So we had lighting and cable you ties. You were for lighting and cable ties. Right. Yeah. And then we had a guy who did paint. Then we had a guy who did electronics, like resistors and things like that. So they wanted to do a roll-up. Gotcha. We were probably the low-hanging fruit. They had the vision for that roll-up. and Correct. And from the time you had the, the drinks at that bar and you see this hometown connection to when completed and they've bought your six, business. Six months. So, so that happens pretty fast. That was the hardest six months Business-wise, because you didn't, you went life. to that dinner. You didn't have an advisor first. You hadn't engaged some. No, they brokers. brought Maureen and the kids. All, yeah, all five of us flew down. It was there. a family kind of learning about it, right? Just to... But they embraced the familyness mm -hmm. of of what we had. And and post of sale, did they maintain that embracing of the family? They did. And I mean, I mean, it. A lot of the people still there. Well, here, this is wild, wild, wild stuff. Be grew along with this roll-up. So I spent three years on the road for them because instead of having five people and I had... Yeah, this wasn't an acquisition and you go away. No. This was, right. you, you're still part of this because you're key and yeah, okay. So I ended up in those three years, um, I always, 
it's kind of like, I guess, being on Broadway. Like you do a little theater, but you always want to play on the big mm-hmm. stage, right? Yeah. So this was my chance to do it. Nice. And, and they weren't going to do the deal unless I stayed okay. for those three years. And so I did. And they had warehouses in um, Hamburg, Singapore, uh, Melbourne, Australia, Dubai. Um, I went to all of them. And what year Dubai. is this? That you I sold this? in 2011. 2011. Okay. And stayed till 2014. And um, there was, again, the family, we, as Jen, you know, Ian. So and the, Megan, the, 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 does the LaSalle electric name still exist? It does. It does. It okay. does. In a very, well, it's it's kind of a DBA now. Yeah, it's within um, this bigger company. The thing that happened, Jamie, is they bought the whole thing. They bought the electrical company and they bought the aerospace. Great. They bought it under one umbrella, mm. which is what it was. And we had a plan because all these new airports, right? Conveyor systems at an airport. These new baggage sure. sort centers. Everything connected to that. We had all the parts for that. We, oh. we had the motors. We had the limit switches. We had the, the recognition systems, the scanners. We sold all of that. Huh. The guy across the street we were just talking about, he had he had some of that. And um, there, the idea was to grow that along with... Keep going. I got to jump on the milk. Oh, yeah, go. The idea was to grow all of that together. And then they called me after about a year. They said, it's it's too far out of our spectacle. So what I'd love to do, yeah, because I think we have to do a second session on life after a sale because there's, sure. there's a transaction. Then there's all the emotional stuff and the... What we you do, what you do after that. We haven't even think. touched on no, it. No, and I'd like to because it's there's just not a lot of that to be captured. You won't forget it. It's we're talking about a dozen years. Oh no, but, it's ingrained. But you've done a wonderful job of that journey of I mean, from the day you had that, came back home and didn't even start that thing and you start that, you're still talking about thirty years of of work in this yeah, family enterprise. Exactly. And, and how many miles do you reckon you've flown in service of the LaSalle business? My then, delta mileage count right now is 3.9 million. So I'm four, trying to get to four, so but four, I don't know if So I'm with others, there. you know, over 4 million miles flown by yourself, yourself in service of the airline industry. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. With any generational business, and your your most important asset is really the people. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a one-person shop or a you know a 55-person shop or industry, um, there's relationships there. With and some of it runs very deep. Yeah, um, we had we had second, third generations. We talked about it for a bit. Um, we were probably highly uh, based on nepotism. We had sisters and we had kids, and uh, so we have multi-generational employees. Mm. And as we talked, you know, we had weathered a lot of uh, economical storms in the industry, and we never laid anybody off. And okay. so, um, you know, we we cut hours during the the airline depression, and but everybody stayed, everybody worked, mm. and that was a a big uh, confidence booster when I took over the company was to weather through that. And then, you know, we go through the the uh, approach to the you know to the impending sale, 
And eventually I was, it was, it became obvious that I couldn't do all of this um, after five o'clock at night. Right. (laughs) So, you know, in, so the, the funny story was um, anybody that runs an industry with inventory is they have to value the inventory to agree. The diligence process people start to have to be around. Yeah. Right. So, um, get a call and they had a, uh, local, uh, CPA firm and they were going to come in and audit the inventory. I was like, and they is B B E aerospace. Correct. Okay. Yep. 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 And I was expecting it and the attorneys were expecting it. And so I had to, I had to bring in at that point, they said, you got to bring in one other person. So I did. And okay. that person became sort of, you know, my backup to any questions. Understand. And so we said, all right, let's do the inventory about eight o'clock after everybody's gone. I said, great. So, so Jamie, I truly anticipated they would come in with like the top 100 part numbers and we would do a physical count and it was hilarious. No, he had about 500 part numbers. And some of these are large pallets. And And this is a whole team that comes in or an individual? No, it's it's me and one guy who really didn't want to be there. So. And one, and one of their one person from them. Correct. Got it. And hilariously enough, I think we wrapped up about three in the morning. Yeah, sure. Climbing over stuff, ladders, high lows, the whole bit. And the story there is when you think you understand how the process of a sale is going to work, you don't because I just, you know, that was probably my biggest unexpected. And then, you know, at the same time, employees that have worked with you for a long time, they absolutely have a sense of- I've I've always wondered that or felt that, sure. 100%. 100%. And I, it, we had, my door was always open and, right. you know, 98% of the time we agreed on almost everything. And then they took leadership and they looked for me for direction. So once they started kind of getting a feel, I started to get questions mm. and, you know, you, you read, you read two or three, four different opinions. They're like, keep it under you know, and go with it as far as you can to you tell them. Uh, but it's a it's a ball underwater. It's going to pop up at some. Yeah. And so as the rumors started, what's going on, Jim, and all of this, and, and it's all done with a sense of worry, right? And so we set a date to actually announce to the employees. And it was by far, in a way, the most emotional thing I'm I've sure. done, um, except for getting married and having kids yeah. and getting engaged. And I then, think. and you, and this announcement to the employees is before the sale is completed and closed. It was all the same day. Ah, so coordinated. Okay. Exactly, and you know, the acquiring company was—they were absolutely fantastic. We had a Great. playbook. Um, you know, we, we always had office meetings. We always had team meetings. Um, so I called it and everybody's in the conference room, but there's some really, really big eyes. This sure. Time. 
Yeah. And, and what, you know, standard human nature, what's in it for me? What does this mean? Uncertainty, all of that. Correct. Right? And, yeah. and were people from the acquiring company there with you? So, uh, no, I got the first 10 minutes on my own. Okay. And I stood up uh, in front of all of them and told them what I had done. And it, it, there was a little bit of joy. Uh, there was a lot of tears yeah. um, and a really heavy duty load of what about me is right. Sure. And, and they earned that. And um, you know, part of it was that they were going to take the entire company um, and all the employees and they would be employed. Nobody was, nobody was going to get whacked and that, you know, that settled it down. And to the acquiring, you know, to BE's credit, um, they had five people in the parking lot and um, they were waiting. And I, you know, called them and I said, okay, you know, I've told them, come on in. And they literally walked in. We had two from HR. We had the senior vice president. We had the president on the phone. Um, They came in with all the information, all the brochures. Uh, they went through the company, the history. They already knew, some of the people already knew some of the people there. So there was yeah. a little bit of a, right. a comfort blanket. Um, I said, I'm staying on, you know, I'm not walking out the door. And it really, um, I, I I look back and Maureen said it to me. She said, the the greatest compliment to that is, they wanted to stay like yes. they, you had, you've right. prepared them well to be successful again on a, they wanted to stay and were able to stay, which is a nice combination for sure. And, so and you that, told, you said that you said you were staying, did you know at that time you were staying three years? Or was I it, did. It was announced in that way. Yep. yep. So that was all presented and um, it, it took a week or so for it to settle in, but I, I truly sat and talked with almost every person individually um, throughout the next week. Of course. And, you know, at work, after work or whatever. And it settled in. But I also learned that when you're the owner, and especially generational, they kind of expect you to be the last one to turn out the lights. And I, I kind of reflected back on that. And that that became a very common um, reaction. Even to if you're in the lighting business, huh? Great. Okay. There you go, clink. Yeah. And um, so it, I think a lot of them thought they would finish their, you know, they'd get to 62 or 65 or 30 years or whatever they wanted to do, then they could leave. But I would still be there. And uh, yeah, there was a little bit of how dare you leave before... I got a chance to leave. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And once we worked through that and we got through the how dare use or why did use, um, it it became very acrimonious. And for that, um, as it was explained to me later, it was actually a fairly um, easy transition. Right. And did the, did your employees benefit financially from this, either over time or immediately or some sort of? I, I do. I think they, they well, they got security, right? And we right. talked about the dynamic changes in the industry. Right. And 
If I sold now, the company would be a different size. It would be a different shape. Um, I, I truly think for everybody's benefit, um, the selling side and the acquisition side, we hit it right at. Yeah. Life is timing. You try to, you try to do things at the right time. And and then, right. and, and most of those folks stayed is what you said, right? So they that's, did. A, few, a few on the electrical side, um, okay. they ventured off. Um, and then, you know, life kind of took its attrition, you know, over the, you know, I, it's, you know, I sold in, in well, it's been 12 years now since I sold, almost 13. And um, it's, they've done what they're supposed to do. They, they've served their time and they wanted to retire and they, they rolled right into, into BE's program. And, and when you did that with, with this, with this business and, and, you know, you knew you had a three-year commitment, but as you were, as you said, the hard six months, due diligence, all that, and I'm sure time flew. Did, did you, were you thinking about what you wanted to do, you know, a couple of years after, you know, at the end of that three-year mark or for, you know, life after pouring it into this business or? I literally wanted to sit down with Maureen for like six months and just have a glass of wine every night. Okay. And so that was more of the plan was just take time at that point and kind of figure uh, things out. hundred percent. Now, full disclosure, that didn't happen. And if, we ever put, <laughs> if I ever put Maureen on this thing, honestly, Jamie, I drove her frigging crazy because she was used to working, me working, Maureen, you know, and I literally became a puppy dog. Like I was in the kitchen, I was in her space and she's like, get out of here. Like, Yeah. And that's a sort of common theme uh, of, uh, you know, TV shows and movies of, you know, then the retirement early days and, you know, the, the, just the change and who's around and what right. different people are doing. Cause yeah, you're in, it's, you're in a pretty steady, literally a routine uh, for a long time. Right. And I mean, you, you, you did, you did have that more, you had the three years and you, you knew that was coming. Right. Um, right. And, and then, you know, as you reflect upon it, because it's now, you know, 10 plus years since that time, you sounds like you have no regrets because it was the right timing, right thing to do for the business, right thing to do for the people. Right. Like, is there anything you would have done differently just in through that transaction? I've been asked that by by friends and family. And no, I, I don't think so. And no, I, I won't even think so. I would say no. And um the biggest struggle was letting go of something that I was the third generation. Understand. Owner. And I mean, I, you know, I do this podcast cause I'm studying this, you know, I haven't done this at our business, but I've had enough clients and friends and other people that have gone through this that, you know, you, it, it's not the same emotion as for them, but you can at least relate to it. And, and you can see, what they've gone through part of it is kind of keeping the stuff like you said under wraps in the secrecy period too that's like it's not that's the, the secret that's bursting but they just know you have to do that because what if it doesn't happen and close right right and then it's oh my god there's a for sale sign on the front lawn yeah and, and you've told that's everybody, bad for everybody. Yeah. yeah and then you lose people because they're unsettled and then you don't have a sellable thing so you know there's all there i mean as you said the playbook and it sounds like this is a firm that acquired. Did they? Did BE continue to make other acquisitions since? They did. 
Um, okay. It was so a little. Very, so they're very good at this. They are, and eventually they were acquired. So okay, um, you know, it it was that uh, poster of the fish. <laughs> it's a big fish eat little fish, right? Yeah. And they were big, and then they ended up. At the end of the day, they they split into two companies, and then um, fast forward to the last couple of years, they actually were acquired by Boeing, and oh, there, wow. therein lies the complete circle of wow. aircraft I, I mean, parts. I, I know because there's you know there's not a lot of information in the digital sphere on your company, your business. You you guys have done a good job keeping that quiet, and then even them. And, and so and maybe that's why when people become part of something else, it's harder to find. Was there any any individuals from your team that this created a great opportunity that they went on and were able to rise and do some neat things? Through yeah, there's a, there's a really short side story to this, and, and we could do another podcast on that. But we did talk about the, the business had two different divisions. Right. And the electrical um, was eventually spun off and acquired. Well, by, that would make sense. Boeing wouldn't want that the same way, sure. Right, and and neither did did BE at, I got at that point. And so that electrical part was spun off, and that group of people has done very very well. Oh, wonderful! And they still have the warehouse in Livonia and um, the original original nice um, spot that we were in and it's under you know um the acquiring company out of port huron and they've some have retired some have gone on to start their own business some have become owners in another business so i'm i'm really happy for that group and so you keep it sounds like you keep your eye and your ear on all these I do. people and yeah. the players so did after your three years were you of counsel in some form to be and then Boeing or any of your people or your, 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 no, it was, man. it was a clean break. Okay. Um, when I was done, I was done and not only emotionally, but physically. And, sure. um, it and then, was, I, I, I said this early on in the, in the original hour. Um, I always wanted the challenge of knowing that I could, make it to the major leagues, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we were the best in class at what we did, but I always wanted to know that I personally, it's one of my goals was to succeed on the biggest stage, which was a, a publicly traded, you know, fortune 500. No, yeah, I get it. Yeah, and and I checked the box and had no desire to, to check another box of three more years. It was, it was fantastic to do it. And the amount of people and places that I met was in the hundreds um, over those years and all great people, great meetings. They took care of their employees. Travel budgets were absolutely reasonable. Um, travel schedules were very demanding. Um, you know, can you be in Hamburg tomorrow? Mm, yeah. You know, yeah, can... no, it's, it's it's so great to hear you say that, you know, the the time and, and what all that takes in a world right now where we're debating if people have to go from their own home to their office that's 20 or 30 or 40 minutes away, you know, right. um, and I'm like, yeah, try to try meeting at the gate at the airport at 620 a.m., you know, right for what's going to be a long day. Absolutely, what, Jamie. What so tell, talk about the, you know, the decade since, you know, your kids watch get to be involved in your kids growing up and all this stuff but like what kinds of things have have you done business-wise community-wise what what's what's it enabled you to do you know it's a it's a cliche but i'm i'm busier now than i was <laughs> then and and i had been told that would happen and it did and 
Um, you know, I'd argue, Maureen and I, we took time for ourselves. Um, we traveled a lot with the kids every year. We always did something with the kids, but we started doing just Maureen and I stuff. Right. You love to travel. So you kept traveling. We Great. kept traveling. Okay. Um, I got involved mostly up at Michigan State um, on a couple different projects. They they have a hilarious program called Golf for Business, and it's a graduate um, seniors only. What well, was um, and it was taught by an LPGA professional, and it's basically how to conduct business on a golf course. And wow. if there was a class that was in my wheelhouse, that yeah. Was, that was the one. And it was every spring, every fall. And then you you wrap up um, playing 18 holes of golf with three students who are graduating. And it it's a real mix up there. There's a lot of uh, state employees from Lansing that are in different state departments um, that would come over and do it. And I was one of the few that was a little more entrepreneurial. Sure. And that class was hilarious because they're so prepared or so they think, and they are, but I would take the kids out in my group and we'd pick up a couple others along the way. And after the golf was over and they did these little award things and stuff, I would make it clear that we would, could go out or we would go out to dinner after. And then the floodgates opened what's it like in the real world and you've got this mini audience of five to seven brains right. so it's, that are, it's not it's not a it, it is a mock interview in a way right truly but it's not just you asking them questions they realize they get a chance to pick yours and the other people's brains and get to know correct yep so I, that that ended with covid um, okay. except for one, one class actually said, well, we can go, we can leave the country and we can go do this class somewhere else. So they did a three week mini semester at St. Andrews and I wow. didn't get on that one. So is this a pretty well-known program or it's like, a, it's, just, it's in the business school and it's, school. I think it's class. I think it's number, I think it's 412 is the class. I mean, you know, there's, there's so much study of, of how caddying is a great exposure to business and people of different different backgrounds 100 percent. but the yep. old keep, keep up show up shut up so in your case you want them to talk a little bit but oh, um, huge and yeah. so that continued they're going to bring the class back uh next year um hopefully so, yeah there's just a story in the wall street journal the other day about women playing golf in business you know it's an underrepresented thing like any other very thing. much so yeah i have a sister who's a judge and when she was a lawyer she took up the game she's darn good at it but she wanted to be part of that that's place that things happened and it's a life skill yeah it truly is and there's a second program at Michigan State. It was started by a uh, management professor named Amy Wisner. A little catchy name, but it was called the Wisdom Project. And you could do it every semester. You can do it once a year. And it's a random match system, but you get anywhere between two and maybe up to five or six uh, graduating seniors. And it's a class, but it's also a project. And they have to do almost what we're doing here, which is to interview me. 
and then they take whatever their takeaway is and they can compare it to other interviews or what they learned. Um, a lot of those students um, I'm still friends with on LinkedIn and um, that's been going on now for about five years. That's so great. I mean, I, I you know, as I listen to your whole journey, you know, cause we get into your younger years and exposure to the family business, doing your other things, the school. I mean, I, my, my, Takeaway is you you've been kind of a lifelong student of business. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And 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 that 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 and, you know there's a lifelong learner built into that because uh, traveling, reading those things teach you about things, and you haven't stopped. <laughs> and um, that's really neat. Now I'm I was like wanting to go play golf with you. Now I was like just forget intimidated by the golf. Now I realize I'm going to be in class while I'm doing so, but we'll figure we'll do that. Anyhow. Uh, <laughs> is there any, anything I did, did? I don't think I asked you the one question that I've asked everybody else as I've done this, this journey, that's only one single common question, which is, and it's a reflection thing for you at this point, what the most fulfilling thing was for you about being part of this family business operation that you led for a long time. It never failed. And the obstacles that we went through, um, a few people that I, I I would say didn't think I had the ability to do this um, was very silly for them to think that. Um, but it, it was that we kept something that was so old, but had changed so many times to follow the industrial path. Um, and we succeeded. And when I say we, it was the family. Oh, it the was we. Yeah. Maureen and the kids and the employees and their kids. And, um, you know, I, I walked out the door and when it was done and I, you know, mistakes were many, but they were small and the company was right where it should be. And I think we did it right. Well, Jim, I, I thank you for your, you know, open on all the subjects we've talked about and representing this idea of generation excellence. I, I guess it's probably appropriate that, you know, we leave and quote, turn out the lights. Um, <laughs> I love that. It's, it's, it's just, it's been, been a delight. And I, I look forward to seeing, cause you know, all of those people you've intersected with and all those miles and all those years, they're not all going to listen to this. Some will hopefully, you know, what kind of, what kind of feedback you get from this capturing this part of your story. Thank you. Well, this has been absolutely, uh, it's been fantastic. I would say it, it's been enlightening, but that would be going too far. Oh, we can put a pun on a pun. Thanks again. All right, we'll do that. Um, but I, what you're doing, thank you so much. This was absolutely uh, a treasure of, of time well spent. Appreciate it. Generation Excellence is a production of SMZ Advertising. Thanks to Joel Bienenfeld, Jeff Martin, and Bridget Georgeski for help with this program. Thank you for listening, and please share, leave reviews, and contact me if you have any thoughts, ideas, questions. Until next time, 